Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our 100th episode. Melissa, can you believe Yay, we hit 100? 100. <laughs> we did it. Almost this, exactly three years, too. It's I like... know, to the date when we started. This is it's a perfect. big one, too. This is a really big, important episode, and we wanted to do a little intro for it because it's so important. Absolutely. So we have been reading about this idea of trauma with reading, um, specifically with Dr. Stephen Dykstra. And we actually asked some of our listeners to connect us with him, which they did, which is thank amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Twitter, um, all yes, the Facebook thank stuff. You. Thank you for helping us connect <laughs> with him. Because it's a really, a, it's, it's such a powerful episode. And Lori, do you want to talk a little bit about why? Yeah, I think this idea of reading and trauma is not recognized enough by educators, not, you know, by any fault of our own, just because we don't know what we don't know. And so as we learn more about the idea of reading and trauma, I keep thinking about when I was a second grade teacher and a high school teacher and a fifth grade teacher and kids would act out in class. And if I had the, had thought then, oh gosh, maybe this is really about reading struggles. That a would have helped me be, I think, a little bit more compassionate in the moment, but also helped me and guided me in knowing what to do next and at least advocating for that child to, you know, receive some more services and that I could help a little bit more by working on, you know, filling in some gaps. I'm sure that you, yeah. you have some thoughts on that too, especially as Absolutely. a secondary teacher. <laughs> and and I think that you know, Dr. Dykstra, which I, I feel like I need to call him Dr. Dykstra because he's just so smart, he's so smart. <laughs> um, is he, he really talks about that, that, um, you know, there is this trauma, big, big traumas in our, big in trauma. our lives. And that's what I think when we think in school about social emotional learning and responding to trauma, we think of those big things, right? Like deaths in families or abuse and, and, and those are real <laughs> and, and, Absolutely. and it totally could be why some of these behaviors are happening in schools, but we don't see often that this like idea of day after day and not being taught how to read and having to go through school where you're at being asked to read every day, like how traumatic is that for students mm -hmm. is huge. And so I think we, we often just see it as a, I don't know. I think teachers often just don't relate that to trauma. It's not, it's not as big of a deal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it is, I think that's the important thing is like, it is such a big deal for students, yeah. not only to learn how to read, but also like what it's doing to them emotionally um, mm -hmm. and, and for the rest of their lives. Yeah. What I think stood out to me from this conversation is when Dr. Dextra said the axis of rating trauma is frequent and repetitive. So it's just that frequent repetitive trauma day after day after day. And it's, mm -hmm. I mean, kids enter school almost every day of their young lives or, and I'm imagining kids who are struggling with reading, then having to go to summer school, right? Like they're the kids who keep having to go to school and right. then the trauma is continuing over and over and over again. And I'm, oh, I'm just imagining like every day, like waking up and feeling immediately, how can I, you know, make my teacher 
think that I can read? How can I trick everybody today? How do I get out of this? (laughs) How do I get out of this? I mean, any one of those things and more. Yeah. yeah, So we, you know, again, Dr. Dexter says that chronic trauma wears down kids who can't read and this can be devastating over time. So this, this conversation I think is one of the most impactful ones that we'll have because a, he shares some stories that are just really compelling and, and will touch your heart and soul, but be it, I think it helps us think a little bit differently about, you know, what is trauma and as educators, what can we look for and how can we think about moving forward with reading trauma differently? And why it's so important for us to mm-hmm. teach reading to students <laughs> in the best See, way we possibly can. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yep. And why we're all here learning together. Exactly. All right. With that, let's go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. Today, we are talking with Dr. Steven Dykstra, which I mean, I've just admired him for so long. So I'm really excited to talk with him today. Melissa, I know you are too. Yeah, yeah. We've we've been reading up on <laughs> some, of, some of his blogs and listening to some of his talks because I think we, we really started to hear from when we talked to some parents specifically of children who have dyslexia. Um, who who talked about the you know, the the way that it really affected their child, right? Like emotionally, not just mm-hmm. in school, but like emotionally affected them. Yeah. Um, and so so we started to see some things from Dr. Dykstra that really stuck out to us. So we'll pass it over to him to tell us all about it. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Dr. Dexter, do you want to start by just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm a, I'm a little bit of an, a, of an outlier in the uh, world of reading and the reading wars and all that kind of stuff. I'm a psychologist, which doesn't make me unusual. Um, I, I work in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where my practice is almost exclusively clinical work. I sort of went down the rabbit hole like so many people have of sort of literacy and the science of reading, structured literacy and all that kind of stuff. Um, Step by step. And then about 12 or 15 years ago, I sort of tumbled down the rest of the way and realized I had sort of been headed in this direction for a long time. And now it was going to take over my life. Um, (laughs) But I'm a little different in the sense I've I've never done or published formal literacy research. I've never taught anybody how to read. I haven't taken letters classes. I don't teach a course in reading. I, I guess I've guest lectured at some classes. I've uh, Mark Seidenberg is a friend and that sort of thing. But my role has really turned out to be sort of explaining some things that maybe other people don't see because they have a different perspective and sometimes interpreting the science and interpreting the literature for people who maybe aren't as fortunate to have the scientific background in the social sciences that I do. And so try to make things that are difficult to understand, a little easier to understand for people. Yeah. And you see the effects of all of this, right? First oh, yeah. Hand. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all do, but it's a question of noticing it. You know, do you pick mm-hmm. up on it? And and do you understand it when you see it? You know, um, you depending on your view of reading and how you understand reading struggles and the difficulty learning to read, you may see a child who's sort of given up and isn't trying very hard or is expending a lot of energy hiding their difficulties from people, um, lying on their reading log and that sort of thing. You may see this as a sort of a lazy kid. They're not really trying. They're not motivated. If they would just be motivated, you know, they Mm -hmm. would be able to do it. And then you talk to these kids and you see kind of the arc of their life and the arc of their literacy development. And you realize 
they're just trying to keep their head above water. You know, they're, they're just trying to survive this. Um, they know better than we do. This isn't a question of trying harder. I can beat my head against the wall all night long. This isn't going to, that's not going to solve it. I need to survive. Yeah. We might, we might view them as untrustworthy or sneaky, but they're surviving. They're doing what they need to do. And, and the only way that they know how to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, I talked to a girl some years ago, she was 16 years old and was the reason I was talking to her is because she was chronically absent from home and school. She would run for days at a time. She's putting herself at great, great danger. She was engaged in some experiences and behaviors that most of us would consider sort of shocking and shameful. Um, and she came home briefly as she did. And then usually she'd leave in a couple of days and disappear again. And while she was home, she agreed to talk with me on the condition that we sat in her attached garage with the door open and that she could be closer to the big garage door than I could. So that if she decided she wanted to get out of there, she could do it. So we sat on these plastic um, outdoor plastic sort of, you know, chairs that everybody's familiar with. And we talked and I asked her, you know, when you first started in school, was there anything difficult for you? Mm -hmm. Um, anything that went poorly. And she said, well, reading. And one of the remarkable things about that is I had talked about this girl and been concerned about this girl uh, for a long time. Nobody in her family or anybody else had said, oh, and you need to know reading was always really hard Mm -hmm. for, and she never really learned to read. That wasn't high on anybody's list. And that was the first time anybody had said that to me. And I said, how bad is it? And she said, well, I can't really read at all. And we got back to talking about being in third grade and not being able to read. And when it was her turn to read in front of the class, or she needed to read something, the dozens of things she could do to get out of that, the, how she could yeah. hide that. And she would get herself in trouble and all that kind of stuff. I had those students, right? They had to go to the right. nurse. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> I feel sick. I go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. I need to walk, you know, sharpen my pencil. They all have these little half inch long pencils because they sharpen the crap out of them all the time. <laughs> It'd be like a diagnostic clue. Um, something's wrong. And she, we started talking about her current life and the things she did. And I said, you know, most people, most kids your age would some sense of shame or guilt or remorse or embarrassment would keep them from doing these things. Why is that not stopping you from doing these things? And she said, well, I've been ashamed since I was six years old. I'm used to it. Mm -hmm. And it just blew me out of my chair. I mean, it just, it just like blew my hair back. Because here was this girl who was making this very clear connection between the shame she felt about reading since she was six years old. The fact that, well, I feel ashamed all the time anyway, so doing other shameful things is no big deal. And I coined the term shame fatigue, that she was so tired of being, she was so accustomed to being ashamed. It didn't matter anymore. Right. And it just, I'm so grateful to her and a lot of these other kids for making those things clear to me. One of the things that I think you do that's, like your superpower and makes you really special is that, and I know you said, you know, you were never a teacher, um, you know, you never had letters training, but you connect the dots to illuminate the big picture to show how, I mean, trauma is what we're, I think what we're talking about, like, please correct me. You're, you're the specialist. Yeah, We're talking about trauma. (laughs) We're talking about, um, you know, what trauma does, what other trauma does to the ability to learn language and literacy, you know, kids have been traumatized in other ways find it harder to learn language and develop mm-hmm. literacy because their mind is preoccupied with other things. And so it's harder. And also the trauma of not being able to do this, you know, little kids know 
six-year-olds know in first grade, we're learning 50 different things this year. We're having all these experiences, but one of them learning to read stands above all the others. They know that if you're not good at kickball or you're not good at art, you know, whatever, but if you can't read, that's big. Six-year-olds know that's big and they know that shouldn't happen. Yeah. And it, it starts to wear them out. Yeah. Can we actually talk about that word trauma a little bit? Because I think people talk a lot of, in school about it right now, right? We talk about social emotional learning and making sure we address right. trauma from home or in the neighborhoods. And I'm not saying that doesn't exist. Like, oh, right. We know it does, right. but I don't yeah. think that You're a lot of Baltimore, people, it's as, it's as real absolutely. as it can be. <laughs> but I don't think people recognize that the trauma can come from something like not being able to read, right? I don't know that. Right. And I, maybe oh, more I, importantly, I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, can I ask? Well, I wanted to add something to that because I've been reading a lot about trauma and I wanted to know your thoughts on it. So why don't you tell more importantly, and then I will share what I've been reading. And I'd love to hear how you would categorize like not being able to read as, as trauma, but go ahead first. What happens for kids a lot of times in urban areas, particularly in in Baltimore and cities, you know, that are facing many of those challenges as so many cities are, um, is reading is going to be one of two things. It's either going to be a success that gives you half a chance of overcoming the other challenges in your life and in your community. It's going to give you an opportunity to overcome it, or it's going to be this massive weight that crushes you down even further than you've already been crushed down. So it's either going to be the best thing going in your life. I can read school's successful for me. I got a chance. I may survive. I might actually survive this. Yeehaw. Or it's going to be just one more thing that, that annihilates you. Um, So the stakes for kids who are sort of already traumatized, already stressed, already burdened by the circumstances of their life make illiteracy that much more significant, that much more poignant. And we all know these kids aren't going to get OG tutoring. They aren't going to get tutoring after school. Their parents can't afford it. It's not available to them in their neighborhood. If they don't learn to read at school, they're not going to learn to read. Right. Right. Because it takes so much time and effort. And right. It's, I just think it's really, well, it's really hard to talk to a kid who spent eight hours in school or seven hours in school, and then they have to come home and do more school. Right. That just, that doesn't seem fair. It's brutal. It's, it's terribly <laughs> unfair. And it, and it takes away other really important things for these kids, like play and relationships and just having fun and enjoying a meal with their family and watching yeah. TV and playing video games, God forbid, you know, that because we vilify so many of those things. Are they watch too much? They need to be around other people doing other things and having fun. Their whole life can't be tutoring to get over something that, you know, is unfair to them in the first place. Yeah. I mean, I think the pandemic illuminated so much of what you just said, you know, in many different ways. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I was preparing for this episode and kind of went down a trauma rabbit hole. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that you can pull me, pull me back out of it. Um, we'll so, see what we can do. All right. So I was reading about and listening to, you know, reading stuff, listening to podcasts, um, big T trauma. Have you heard right. of Yeah. And little T trauma. I like how I'm asking you the, the, the professional, if you've heard of big T and little T trauma, as I'm just learning about it. Um, but I, <laughs> I'm imagining, right. So I'm wondering in your opinion and I, and I, I'll frame my understanding of it and then please you tell me what, if I'm right, wrong, maybe kind of halfway, um, big T trauma would be things like abuse or divorce, like a big event that causes trauma, like a war, right. Um, the little T trauma might be things like 
bullying or feeling misunderstood or rejected or invalidated. I'm wondering where reading fits on here. I have some idea, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on where like not being able to read and and that struggle fits within that trauma. As we think of trauma and we sort of classify it and make, try to make predictions about how likely it is to disrupt a child's life. And more importantly, to really disrupt the course of their development. Um, We need to think about two things. One is the severity of the trauma and people have pretty good instincts about what kind of trauma is the most severe and what kind of trauma is less severe. You know, this study has actually been done. You can give people 50 or a hundred hypothetical traumatic events that range from spectacular down to something more mild. And you ask people to rank them in order from the most severe to the least severe people more or less rank them in the same order. No, nobody thinks that having to put your dog down when you were 12 is as bad as, you know, being in a car accident where somebody died, you know, nobody thinks that, but the other, the other axis on which we have to rate trauma is how chronic and repetitive it is. And we know, you know, People hear about, you know, who work with kids and work with people are familiar with the term trauma-informed care and the idea of being more trauma-aware as we work with people. The real revolution of trauma-informed care is not the recognition that trauma affects people. We always knew trauma affected people. Nobody ever thought trauma didn't affect people. If terrible things happened to you, we knew that that had an impact on you. What trauma-informed care really did in terms of opening our eyes this goes back to the ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study first done in California and then the Urban ACEs that was done in Philadelphia and lots of other studies that really opened our eyes to the fact that very often kids are more deeply affected and their development is more deeply disrupted by the low grade or moderate level trauma, which repeats over and over and over again. It's just always there. It never goes away. It's always there. It's always there. It happens over and over again. Then the really dramatic, spectacular trauma, which happens once in your life, it's unexpected and it never repeats itself. Um, And, you know, people are remarkably good if they are supported, if they're loved, if they're cared for, if they have other things going on well in their life. People are remarkably resilient, even children, at their ability to recover from those really spectacular lightning bolt kind of traumas. Um, But the chronic trauma that wears you down over time can be devastating in a way that we didn't used to see, um, that we were less aware of. Um, You know, now obviously the worst thing is the chronic repetitive, super bad traumas. You know, if the super bad thing is happening every day over and over again, that's, you know, that's the the nightmare scenario. Mm -hmm. Um, But that awareness that chronic repetitive, this isn't going anywhere. This is going to be with me forever trauma. Um, really is very corrosive to development, very disruptive to development, is a relatively recent, you know, last 10, 15 years understanding of how kids respond to trauma. And difficulty reading and worries about difficulty reading, it's not just like that girl talking. It's not just when they call on you and you know you can't read. It's worrying the night before as you're going to bed, are they going to call on me at school tomorrow? Mm -hmm. Worrying from the time you walk in. Am I going to be able to keep it hidden today? Um, preparing for that all the time, being ready for it all the time. Wears people down. It wears them out. Yeah. 
That's one of the parents that we talked to. She said that her, her daughter used to hide at recess because they yeah. tried to get her to do some extra practice during recess. So she would hide every day. <laughs> think of the brutality of that, you yeah. know, that our best plan for getting this kid extra help with reading is to take recess away from her. Right. Oh my gosh. I know what the hell, you know, Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, I, I'm not discounting the, the other thing that children, things that children need to learn, but you know, if you don't, if, if I take you out of the, the social studies unit on Egypt or China or reading maps or whatever it is we're doing, it's not that those things aren't important. I value those things a lot. I enjoyed them when I was in school, but you can learn that you can get caught up on that. You can learn that later. You know, you have a lot, there's, and there's lots of ways to learn that I can get you a, you know, once you can read, I'll get you a <laughs> subscription to National Geographic. And yeah, that's what you know. I was, that's what I was thinking. The, the <laughs> intervention that you're talking about is temporary. It's not right. a permanent right. intervention. Right. And, but if I don't get you to read by a certain time, if I don't teach you to read when it's still relatively easier to teach you to read, even if it's not easy for a particular child, it's easier. If I don't, if we don't strike during that developmental window, um, we've really let you down. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that and for for hearing a, my question about the big T, little T. I've been thinking about it all week. <laughs> you know, if any, some of this has to do with understanding the development of children and taking the long view and understanding priorities, you know. God forbid, you know, if you get into a car accident today and you have 15 different injuries and you get rushed to a trauma center, the people at that trauma center are going to be really good at figuring out, okay, this person has 15 serious injuries, but this one, this one right here is the one where we need to put our attention. This is the big one. We call that triage. Yeah. Their leg is broken. I don't care. They've got a big bump on their head and they've lost some teeth, whatever. But right here where they're losing massive amounts of blood, this is the one I have to stop because if I don't do something about this, none of the rest of it is going to matter. It doesn't matter if I teach you about China or Egypt or how to read a map or any of those things or the temperature at which water boils. It doesn't None of that matters if I don't teach you to read. So those things are all, those are great things to learn. And I want kids to learn those things and have those experiences but they are not as important as learning to read in those early years of school. And they are not as important as recess. So I'm going to take, if I'm going to take you away <laughs> from something, if I'm going to take something out of your learning and your experiences to get you to find more time to teach you to read, I'm not going to take recess away from you. I'm going to take everything else away before I take recess away from you. Because if you understand the development of children, you understand how critically important mm -hmm. that recess is. In fact, if this, if I'm working you really hard on reading, if anything, I'm going to give you more recess than other kids because you need that recovery time. You need that break. You need that chance to feel good about yourself and about the world. Mm -hmm. I'm going to add lunchtime to that too. Don't take yeah. anything. Not, not no. Lunch and recess. Keep all of that. Yes. Like <laughs> any adult would be really upset if their lunch and recess time were taken. Yeah, away. absolutely. <laughs> and you know, in, for any individual kid, you know, somebody's going to find find me some individual kid who's so socially anxious, they can't stand lunch and they would really rather just stay in and right. play with blocks or so, just shoot baskets in the gym than go out on recess. Yeah. For the individual kid where that's true, you know, whatever there's, it's the exception that proves the rule. But for most kids, they need that. They need those other experiences desperately. Absolutely. 
I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about you or your experience. Like, how did you get to into the science of reading world? I know you told one story of someone that that you worked with, but like, did you so repeatedly just, see these stories? So, come you up know, if or? we go back to graduate school for me, which was in the mid '80s, um, I had a professor who was a really accomplished neuropsychologist who specialized in learning disabilities and describing learning disabilities. Brilliant man. Um, and I was in a class with him and he paused one day. I remember this very vividly. He was talking about teaching kids to read and that's not what the class was about. <laughs> mentioning something about teaching kids to read and the difficulty teaching learning disabled kids how to read. And he stopped and he said, there's something going on in our schools these days, the way we teach kids to read. He said, you know, it's almost impossible to sue schools for malpractice. And it should be. It should be difficult to sue schools for malpractice. But if schools are ever going to get sued for malpractice, this is what it's going to be about. And he didn't say whole language, but I realized later that's what he was talking about, that he saw the rise of whole language in schools. And he was saying, this is really bad. This is terrible. Mm -hmm. In a sense, that was my first little tiny exposure, the first seed that was planted. And then my, my child in, in the 90s, in the early 90s, my first child went to school and struggled to learn to read. It was probably mildly dyslexic to moderately dyslexic, got terrible instruction. We came in to meet with his teacher to talk about this. It might have been during regular parent-teacher conference. And, and she said, you, you know, he's having a really hard time learning to read. He said, yeah, we know. We're, we're worried about it. She said, you know, do you read to him at home? And we said, yeah. And she said, her next question was remarkable. She said, are you sure? And I remember thinking, what, you think like I'm right, hallucinating like making... this or I'm delusional? I'm making I'm just, this up. Yeah. I thought I was reading to him, but really I was just napping. You know, it was a dream. You know, but God bless her. That's the only explanation she had for anything, which right. was just need to read to them. If you're not, if they're not reading, somebody must not be reading to them. And this is in a, in a, in a well-educated suburb, you know, most of the kids in school, you know, she knew we had advanced degrees and why should this be happening? Um, and we sort of went back and forth about that for a little bit. She said, you know, when you read with him and he can't get a word, what do you do? I said, well, I, you know, I, I gave my explanation of how I helped as best I could for him to sound it out. She made this face and sort of put her hands together. She said, that's the problem. She said, phonics and sounding it out that doesn't help kids read it makes it harder for them don't do that anymore she was sure oh. she had found the problem oh and I that's like thinking, so cringy that's so I cringy yeah, I know. to hear you say that and, and and i remember thinking at the moment remembering my professor from less than 10 mm -hmm. years earlier and thinking there it is that's that crappy this is it this is what yeah. he was this must be what he was talking about and so one thing leads to another leads to another um, that sort of gets me involved, starts me down the rabbit hole a little bit. And then I get invited to be on a panel that's reviewing different aspects of our school district. And somebody sort of works behind the scenes to get me onto this panel that's going to look at um, literacy in our school district and how we teach literacy. And I'm sitting with this one other person who got me involved in this. And everybody else are either school people or parents who just believe the school is always right and they know everything. And it was like being in the twilight zone. I mean, I brought in, so I brought in the report of the national reading panel and the report of the national Academy of sciences, you know, Catherine snow's report. I bring these two things in, I've got them. You know, I'm saying, what about this? 
and I, I'm not kidding you. A teacher reaches into her bag and pulls out Xerox copies of two Wisconsin State Reading Association newsletters. And she says, well, what about these? And the chair of the committee, who's defending the district to the, to the nth degree, says, well, you've got two and she's got two. Looks like a tie. Um, and I just I tell, about lost I, it. If you can see what? our faces right now. I, know, and, well, I thought you were actually, I thought you were going to say, and this is really bad. I thought you were going to say she pulled out the, the puppets that units of study uses to teach like, and, and that's where I thought you were going with this. Like she pulled the puppets out of her bag. The newsletter is equally as bad as puppets though. She was carrying this so-called, I'm making air quotes. Now she was carrying this research around with her for just such a moment. And she thought two copies of her state reading association newsletter, newsletter. counterbalanced a report of the national Academy of sciences and the national reading panel, which each site over 600 peer reviewed scientific experiments and quasi experiments showing how reading develops and what we should do. But her little opinion pieces from a newsletter, you've got two and I've got two looks like a tie. If we, if we were recording this on video, we'd, we'd have to like fix our faces a whole There's lot. Lots There's of head lot. slapping going like, on. Yeah. You know, and I, and I lost it, you know, I mean, I, yeah. I was provocative and, you know, bold and probably pretty rude. I, it's not that they didn't deserve it. It probably wasn't productive to do all that, but that was that moment more than anything really sort of, I sort of made up my mind, well, I'm not backing off of this. This is going to become a part of my life. And since then I've been appointed to different state panels in Wisconsin that didn't accomplish very much um, and spoken at conferences and, and, you know, done this sort of work to try to raise awareness. But, you know, if people don't want to be aware they're really good at not being aware. You know, they're really good at screening that out and not paying attention to it. Yeah. I think what stands out for me is that you said um, in our pre-call, we're artificially creating issues for kids that don't need to be there. And yeah, you were walking in trying to prevent that and, and sharing valid information and research and like just the inability to see other perspectives or right. to admit that maybe there's another way of doing something like that just, it just feels really, really like, I, I can't even imagine how you felt in that moment. <laughs> well, you know, if, if that girl I talked about earlier had shame fatigue, I think these other people have what I would describe as shame denial or shame defense. They're, they're so determined not to face the shame and regret about the decisions they've made and the opportunities they missed with dozens or hundreds of children Right. Um, that they're willing to hold that off against the, the, the deep tide of reality. You know, reality and science is telling them something. They're desperately holding it back saying, I don't think so. It's like standing in the rain. It's a, you know, it's like you're walking with somebody and it, you feel the first few drops of rain. He said, I think it's raining. And somebody said, no, no, it's not raining. It's not raining. That's not what this is. This is somebody standing in the middle of a thunderstorm drenched with buckets of water, <laughs> insisting that it's not raining. Um, the evidence that there is a better way to teach reading is so overwhelming. And, you know, the defense against that is to pick at little details of isolated articles to deny their connection mm -hmm. to the broader science, to hold up one poorly done scientific research article and saying, your 900 studies can't be right because <laughs> look at the one that I have. Right. 
Um, or I see them going know, to like the feeling, right? Like, it, yeah, but like everyone's so happy or like, you know, it's just like uh, things that aren't scientific yeah, that, at all. That <laughs> right? happened. Yeah. That happened at our county's board meeting like, right. like this past week. Like, but, <laughs> but students love it. I'm like, I don't right. think they love it. If they're not reading, they don't love yeah. it. You know, <laughs> and, you know, parents wouldn't love it if they realized, you know, one of the really interesting things about the data is if we look at places that worked hard, states that worked hard to improve reading instruction, um, they all did it to try to, if we talk about the National Assessment of Educational Progress data, if we talk about NAEP data, they all did it to take those kids at the bottom, the kids who were reading below basic and raise them up. And, and everywhere they did it well, that's what happened. You know, Mississippi, Florida, Massachusetts, people along all, you know, Colorado, now Arkansas, all these different places have raised up kids from the bottom. To their surprise, in every one of those locations, the kids at the top, the kids at the advanced level, more doubled or more than doubled in every location. The message there is really interesting. That is the same science and the same techniques and the same knowledge that raises kids up from the bottom, mm -hmm. takes kids at the top and pushes them even farther ahead. Mm -hmm. I want people to know that because what happens is sometimes the biggest opponents to teaching this way are the parents of kids who seem to be achieving quite well. You know, my, my daughter, my second child learned to read very easily. It was very natural for her. And, you know, if that's the only child I had, I would have said, no, the way they teach works great. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, as a matter of statistical likelihood, had we taught differently, she would have read even better, even faster. That kids who are, are advanced become even more advanced. Kids who are proficient become advanced. And the other thing that happens is if we take the long view, if we do a better job teaching kids to read early, take kids from basic to proficient, from proficient advanced, move them up within the range of proficiency to higher levels of proficiency, that means that later in elementary school and in middle school and in high school, when you want to have that class for the advanced kids, when you want to have that more, more challenging English class or more challenging history class, you can do it because you'll have enough students who can do that. That's good for everybody. That's good. That's, you know, this is, this stuff isn't just for the kids who are struggling. This isn't just for dyslexic kids. In fact, I think it probably works better for kids who aren't dyslexic. It's even more impactful on kids who aren't dyslexic, but maybe just struggle a little bit or didn't have all the benefits and privileges that other people did or are good readers and they want to become great readers. It's, it's more effective for them than for dyslexic kids. Dyslexia is really hard. I mean, it takes a long time. It doesn't go away. Um, yeah. I like how you thought about the high school class. I was imagining when you were sharing that, that data, I was imagining how, and when I was a teacher, you know, I always heard people say things like, um, you know, we're, we're teaching them and, you know, for, to be prepared for jobs that don't yet exist or some, some sort of saying like that. And I was imagining yeah, the, bumper, the bumper sticker of the day. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I was imagining as you were talking Wow, if they could have, you know, advanced even faster in their reading, all the the not like that's like fifty percent more knowledge they could ha have to right. be prepared. Like, what would they do with this world <laughs> or in this world if mm -hmm. they were even more prepared, like doubly prepared right. with knowledge and access to knowledge? And we have this phrase that goes around in teaching and in learn and in schools, and it's absolutely correct, but I don't think it's well understood. This notion of creating lifelong learners, great, wonderful fine. 
how the hell are you going to be a lifelong learner if you're not a really good reader? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and not just an adequate reader, but the best reader you can possibly be is what makes you a lifelong learner. Yeah. Because otherwise, I mean, it's not. How are you going to learn? It's not very fun if you're struggling to read and you want to learn some, about something, right. right? Absolutely. Let's not make it fun. <laughs> I wanted to ask a quick question about um, we talk a lot about this change for teachers, right? Like changing mindset for teachers, right. moving from one thing to another, and how there can be some guilt with the teachers. I also wanted to, you told us a story in our pre call about um, a doctor in London. Oh, that, so can you tell that story because it, it this is this <laughs> is the story, and you can look this up. And some it comes out a little different at different places because this is we're going back to the 19th century here. Um, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing his first name right, but it's a guy named Ignace Semmelweis. Um, he was a doctor in in London. He did a lot. He delivered babies. Maybe did other things as well, but did a lot of work in the East End of London where there was a lot of poverty and a lot of you know, poor hygiene, lack of services. Um, and he was very troubled by the number of mothers who died of post-delivery infections or had or survived them, but were injured by them, had to recover from them, the burden that caused sterility and damage and morbidity and shorten their lives. And it was very bad. And he was looking for ways to improve this. And based on some early attempts to interpret science, he started washing his instruments more, cleaning his hands. They didn't have gloves in chlorinated water, basically mild, a mild bleach solution, not unlike we might do today. And he kept track of his data as best he could. And the women that whose babies he delivered when they did that, when they kept the delivery room clean and they had clean instruments and clean hands, had a dramatic reduction in the number and severity of infections. And he presented this information to a medical association in London. And I imagine that Semmelweis was very excited. He had solved a major yeah. problem. He was going <laughs> to save lots of lives. This was going to be great news. He presented this to them. And rather than being warmly received and causing a revolution in the way doctors conducted their practice, not just delivering babies, but elsewhere, um, he was discredited. Uh, the doctors refused to believe what they were being told. And instead of following what Semmelweis advised them in either doing more studies or following his practice, they had him involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital. He must be insane if he says these things. And in a year or two, Semmelweis was dead. Um, a few decades later, as more signs build up and an understanding of bacteria and bacterial infections became more widely known in the work of Louis Pasteur and other people, everything that Semmelweis recommended became standard practice. But at the time, and this is my interpretation as a psychologist, I think it's, and I think it's probably right. Faced with the challenge of saying, oh, we need to change what we're doing. We're the problem. And really swallowing that bitter pill. It turns out we were the reason they were dying. Right. Or saying that can't be because I can't accept the possibility that I was doing this. They chose the second, they chose the latter. And had this guy involuntary committed. Now, what, what they share in common with teachers is their deep personal commitment to what they're doing. You don't do that. You don't do that unless you're deeply, personally, passionately committed to what you're doing. Because if you don't care, 
It's easy to change if you don't care. If it didn't bother you that all these people were suffering, if it doesn't bother you that all these kids aren't learning to read, if it never bothered you that your patients were dying, the change would be easy. Mm-hmm. So it, in a sense, it is the years, the decades the, the, of deep personal commitment to these children to this problem, which makes it so hard for ch- teachers to change. And there's another insidious thing, you know, in balanced literacy and whole language, one of the messages that's given to teachers over and over again is you'll know what to do. You'll decide in your classroom what's the best way. You'll have these perfect instincts to know what to do next. It'll just come to you because you're such a dedicated, passionate person. The implication of that, if you believe it, is that if they're not learning to read, it's because my pat, not right, exactly. She's pointing to herself. It's because my passion and my my decision-making in my judgment was flawed. I failed. They didn't fail. The message was wrong in the first place. You're not going to instinctively know. This isn't instinctive. You know, one of the worst phrases, one of the worst phrases in reading, and everybody uses it, is I watched it. I watched them read. And this is what I saw. Nobody has ever (laughs) watched a child read. Reading goes, or anybody else read. Reading goes on deep in your mind and you do things that you don't even know you're doing. Yeah, so quickly. You know, unless, <laughs> unless you're in an MRI machine or I have wires taped to your head, nobody's watching you read. I'm watching you while you read. I'm observing certain behaviors that go along with reading, how you turn pages where your eyes seem to be looking, but we're not really watching people read. And that that distinction is important because it strikes at this belief that you're going to watch kids read and you'll just know what to do. You will observe what you can and what the knowledge it takes to translate those limited superficial observations into a deep understanding of what's really going on is hard. That's very difficult diagnostic thinking. You know, reading an x-ray is easy. Reading a lab value is easy. This is really difficult diagnostic decision-making because you have imperfect information to try to understand a very complex thing. For I me love that my, you said that. Sorry. Yeah. I even think that way about oh. assessments because I think oh. like, you know, like it can d- analyze this data all you want, but like why they chose C over B could be a right. million reasons. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> yeah. You don't know what was going on in their head to oh. know one where of my it went things, wrong. One of the things <laughs> I think helps me in my affinity for teachers and the challenge of all this is that it so closely parallels what I do working in clinical mental health work with really, really challenging, difficult situations. You see a pattern in behavior, you have a set of facts. There's no test you can run. You can't take a blood draw. You can't do an x-ray. There's nothing simple that's (laughs) going to give you a clear answer. This is a really complex, multifaceted problem that you're going to figure out over time. You're probably going to be wrong three or four times before you're right. That's what you know, I was thinking. That's the key piece is that right. you you may be wrong before you're right. And you might have to try lots of things. I don't think that that's accepted in education. It's like this right. pressure to be right. Oh. Mm-hmm. oh, you know, some of the most interesting and challenging young people I've helped with really severe mental health diagnoses, I had wrong sometimes for years before we figured it out. There was a young man I thought was psychotic and I realized later he's, he's not psychotic because if he was psychotic, he couldn't do this right now. He couldn't have this conversation that we're having. He couldn't think as clearly and as, as really subtly as he is. This is not what I thought it was. Um, those are really interesting moments. And I think we have to give people the permission to be wrong, to say, 
despite their passion and their commitment, huh? We got that wrong. All right, let's figure that out. Great. Let's f- figure and to not take it personally. Now that's yeah. really hard because teachers aren't doing it for the money. Right. They aren't doing it for the, they aren't doing it for the great hours. <laughs> you know, they aren't, they're doing it for the passion. So I'm saying be a little less passionate. This might be easier in that moment, sort of dial down the passion. The other challenge I think we have is that people identify themselves in their work too much not only with the job they have, but the way they do their job. Mm -hmm. So I'm not just a teacher. I'm a teacher who teaches this way. I don't just teach reading. I teach reading this way. And that's my identity. And if you spend four hours after school planning for my reading groups. Yeah. In the last 20 years, going to conferences often at my, on my own time and at my own expense to get better at it. And you're telling me those were all bad choices. And my response, if I was going to be really sort of callous about it. My response is, yeah, they were terrible choices. Get over it. You know, whatever, <laughs> you know, people I think in healthcare. That speaks to like more, inf- the more information you have, then you can right. then pivot. Right. So you get more information, you pivot. Right. Okay. We went to the, I went to those conferences because back then I thought I knew this, right. but now I know this and I'm learning more. And now I'm going to go to different conferences. Like, right. It's not, right. it's, it's not when like I a, first started in my career. I worked with little kids who we had hospitalized in an inpatient setting. We would never do that. Now I I'm horrified by what we did. I, I would never do that. Now I, you know, I would never be involved in it. I would never support that, but we thought it was the best thing to do. And it doesn't mean we were bad people or that we did bad work. It was a bad way of treating kids who had significant mental health concerns. I think as a bad way to do it, we did it better than almost anybody else but it was still a bad way to do it. If we took that same passion and the same dedication and did a, had a better model and did it well, we would get better results. And that's what we do now. And we do get better results. Thank you for sharing that example. I think it's helpful to normalize that this is not, this is not just an education thing. I mean, I know yeah. we know that, but to hear a specific example no. is really helpful. Thanks no, for I that. wish, yeah. I wish doctors, I wish, I wish teachers had more chance to talk openly with people like me, psychologists, therapists, physicians, doctors, people who work in healthcare, because we're figuring things out all the time where we look back and say, oh, we could have done that better. You know, things are improving all the time and you have to be able to accept that. It's not unique to teaching. You know, when my mother had children in the early 1960s, women gave birth and then they laid flat on their back for 10 days while they healed and recovered. That's a terrible thing to do (laughs) after women give birth. You know, people have knee, had knee surgery and we put them in a splint for 30 days. So they never bent their knee. That's a horrible thing to do. We would never do that. Now that's a, that's a prescription for disaster. It dramatically increases the likelihood of post-operative arthritis. You know, that would be malpractice if you did it today, but that was the best idea we had. So we did it. Yeah. Um, I'm even thinking about like, I've been learning and reading in the past like few years about parenting and the way that I was parented. Not, I mean, my parents, are amazing. But the way that I was parented in the eighties and the nineties, yeah, my dad listens to every episode. (laughs) He gets very confused about some things, but he is lovely about calling and asking. Um, so you're probably going to be on his, his list to ask about. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're amazing, but the way that, that we were parented or that I was parented back in the eighties and nineties is very different than the parent that I want to be in, in two thousand in the 2020s or whatever it might be, because I've learned more and I've read research and I'm like, Oh, th- it doesn't quite work to send kids to their room and never talk about what happened or, right. you know, send them on a shame spiral. <laughs> like children, <laughs> children, 
children, you know, it, premature babies who were kept in neonatal intensive care units for the longest time when that when we had that ability, we didn't touch them, we didn't hold them, we didn't move them, yeah, oh, we didn't yeah. bother them. Children's hospitals used to have visiting hours. You know, you could only visit a certain time. The children need to rest. We need to leave them alone. Now we hold those kids like crazy. If your kid's in a, in a children's hospital now, there's a couch or a recliner in the room that folds into a bed because we expect you to be there with them. We don't have visiting hours. Hell, if you're not here the whole 24 hours, we're, we want to know why not. <laughs> you know, So that's a recognition that what we thought was important, what we thought worked best, didn't. And in fact, we were making things worse and kids heal better if people are there with them and they recover better out of the hospital than in the hospital. So we keep people in the hospital as little time as possible and we make sure they have people around them. That doesn't mean the people who did it the other way were bad people. That was our best understanding at the time. Right. Now, if you were operating a children's hospital now and said, damn it, this is how we did it. This is how I do things. <laughs> we have one hour of visiting. Otherwise, we don't want parents here. That would be malpractice and the government would shut you down. Well, that is saying something, right? So yeah, and, and like, I mean, our schools, right? Our school, like, what are we doing? Yeah. And it's not personal. I mean, that's the hard part. Yeah. This is, it feels very personal. You know, it does feel very personal, but it's not personal. And let me tell you something. And as long as we're sharing, you know, because of the thousands of kids I've worked with in the really severe end of the spectrum that I work at, um, you know, I've had. I've had clients I worked with who died. I've had clients I've worked with who've killed themselves. I've had clients I've worked with who killed other people. Um, I've had clients I've worked with who were killed by other people because, and the fact that they were severely mentally ill contributed to that. And after that, you know, you want to talk about looking back on what you did and didn't do. And, and, you know, I had a, I had a young lady, I said on a Monday that I didn't think she was really going to kill herself and she needed didn't need to go to the hospital on Wednesday morning. She was dead. Mm. Um, you, you know, teachers want to sit down and talk with me about feeling bad about the decisions we made and right. looking back on that and having to honestly face that I'll have that conversation with anybody. Cause that's, that's part of the game. That's, that's part of the challenge that we all have to face. Um, you know, and it's, People are making the best decisions they can at the time. And what that is changes over time. As you get more information and more experience, the best decision you can make changes. You shouldn't be locked in to the same decision you made before, because that's just how I do it. That's not a good answer. That's just not a good reason. Yeah. I think too, as adults, we get so comfortable with feeling like, okay, we've got, got everything under control. Right. We're grown ups, and it's learning, learning feels hard. It feels bad. I mean, especially as an adult, like to have to learn something new, you know, I mean, I get frustrated doing like some minimal task, like having to overhaul your whole belief system on how kids learn to read or, you know, yeah. that's seems insurmountable and, and feels not so great sometimes. I mean, I'm just thinking about my 10 year old when she, she was upset about math homework the other night and with fractions and like, the tears and how, and she finally just said, learning is so hard. I hate this. When do I get to know everything? And I'm like, never. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. not a bad feeling. It's just, right. Right. It's just you know, a feeling. <laughs> one of the things, you know, as we think about what teachers need to know, what people need to know, and I just wrote something about this for another forum just earlier today. 
is we're very focused. A lot of people are very focused. What's the best assessment I can have? What's the best test? What's the best measurement mm-hmm. I can use? What can I do? And they're missing the fact that assess, you can have the best assessment in the world, but if you don't have an accurate understanding of your expectations for how, what this kid should be doing at this time and what, how this child should be developing, you're not going to do anything productive with what that assessment data tells you anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, the most of our assessment data is informal. It's sitting with children while they read, observing their answers, things, how they respond to questions, observing their errors and mistakes that they make. You have to have really deep knowledge and understanding to make good use of that data. And I, I don't think we're spending enough time helping teachers because it's not natural you know one of the mistakes we make is not only are you a teacher you're probably a woman and you probably have children at home of your own so there's this presumption that i don't have to tell you how things go on with kids you know all that already you're a woman it was wired into your uterus you understand kids it's automatic (laughs) it's like instinctive i wish and you've got kids (laughs) you know one of the one of the really interesting study and i can never find it but it was this little small study that was done like 30 40 years ago we know that one of the top years for referrals for special ed, particularly for behavioral problems, is third grade. And somebody did a study. We also know that some teachers refer a lot more kids for special ed and other teachers don't. And somebody did a study to look at across a large number of teachers who refers more kids for special ed. And they were expecting to find that more experienced, better trained teachers referred fewer kids to special ed. That's not what they found. They found that teachers who referred the fewest kids to special ed in third grade were teachers who had brothers growing up and had sons of their own. I didn't expect that. Because they understood (laughs) what's normal for boys. If you had no brothers growing up and you have no sons at home, eight-year-old boys all look like they're crazy. (laughs) (laughs) They all look nuts. So you're like, holy crap. I only have a three-year-old boy, but I can imagine. They all belong (laughs) to special ed. What is this? Your perspective is off. We are not born inherently with an understanding of what to expect from children at a given age for anything, much less language development and literacy development. Um, And so many more boys I've seen have IEPs. Oh, yeah. And And some of that is that they are more likely to have these difficulties. Some of it is that Schools are not designed for them. You know, one of the things I say about kids who, you know, that's another thing we have to understand about kids who struggle. Schools are run by people who did well in school and liked school so much. (laughs) They went to school for a long time so they could come back and get a job in school. (laughs) Yeah, that is right. They're not naturally given to understanding an eight or nine or 10 year old boy who hates school with all of his heart and all of his soul and is failing at school. It is not a natural thing to get that kid. You can give him all the pep talks you want in the world. Oh, come on, buddy. You're going to be fine. He just hears, you know, you don't get me. You don't understand me. Right. So it takes time to do that. It takes effort to do that. We have to help people develop expectations for these kids that allow us to understand our informal and informal assessment data. Because if you see a kid stumble across a word that you think they should know, first of all, Why do you think they should know it? Is that a reasonable expectation? How did they stumble? Did you expect them? Do you have an expectation for their learning that shows that some errors are different and more serious than other errors? And 
do you what do you conclude from that? Well, if your expectation is they should be using the pictures more, your conclusion is they're not using the pictures enough. If your expectation of that is that they should pay more attention to the words around it and what makes sense, that's what you're going to think you're seeing. He's not paying enough attention to the words around it. He's not paying attention to what mm-hmm. makes sense. He's not double checking enough. Whereas if you think, well, he he left out a whole sound. He ignored the letters of the word completely. You come to a different conclusion because you had different expectations about what that child should be doing while they're reading. Um, I so might be how, I might that, be wrong, but is that called confirmation bias, or is that just like? Oh, it can be. It can be, but it, sometimes it's just that you don't you don't understand what you should be seeing. You know, right. um, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, parents panic sometimes because their thirteen month old child can't walk. You know, <laughs> they're not walking it. Oh my God, they're all supposed to walk it. At 12 months, if they're not walking by one, you know, it's the end of the world. Kids start walking at a lot. Now, if they're not walking at 18 months, that's a different thing. Right. But you have to have reasonable expectations for what it is you're seeing. You have to understand what's unusual, what's not unusual. You know, a kid who's not talking at 14 months doesn't really worry me unless they also weren't babbling. They aren't paying attention to language. They don't make sounds at all. Mm-hmm. You know, they aren't. They, they don't seem to be paying attention to their world or be very engaged with their world. Now, the fact that they're not talking in 14 months not only worries me, it doesn't even surprise me because they weren't doing all these other things. If they had started talking at 13 months after not doing those other things, I would have been flabbergasted. I would have thought, what the hell? You know, I never <laughs> expected this to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't care if a kid doesn't roll over. Now, if a kid doesn't roll over and doesn't sit up, and doesn't walk at 12 or 13 months, all of that together creates a different constellation of expectations that worries me more. But you have to understand all that. You have to understand how those pieces all fit together um, to to, uh, really properly weigh the assessment data. Because there are kids who come to school. There are kids who can't do certain things in literacy that I'm really worried about. And there are kids who can't do the same things that I'm much less worried about. Yeah. You're reminding me of when I taught fifth grade and I always had my kids do portfolios of their mm-hmm. work and it, it, their assessments went in there, their writing samples went in there, their, they could choose to put what in, in there, whatever they wanted. And then we also, I also asked them to get, um, to, you know, obtain samples from other classrooms, other work they were proud of that they wanted to add in. And I think what that did was that allowed me to see them as a whole person and talk to, well, why did you choose this? You know, what made you feel like this, this was a great piece of work. And I think oftentimes we do just look at one thing, you know, what I'm hearing you Mm -hmm. say is that doesn't feel so good. Like I I would not like it if my supervisor just looked at one thing that I did and that one thing got to represent what I got to do then for the next year or the next month or the next, you know, couple of weeks or whatever. Right. I would want it to be a representation of what I've spent my whole 40 hour work week for multiple, <laughs> multiple weeks, multiple months, you know, doing and, and, um, working on and, and sharing. So I, I think oftentimes we, we treat kids differently than we treat adults and that doesn't feel so great. And, Thank you for illuminating that. That cuts both ways. Um, One thing doesn't cancel out everything else, either because the one thing is good or bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And everything else doesn't cancel out the one thing. 
You know, if, if you tell me this kid is reading fine, you have no worries about them. And then somebody gives them a formal assessment of, of word reading efficiency and they score terribly. I'm not going to look and say, yeah, but you know, they'll be okay. They've got a good reading log. (laughs) You know, it's all good. The Mm -hmm. teacher said she's not worried about him. It's like, wait a minute. I have to account for this. Now it's not everything. It doesn't answer everything. It doesn't erase everything else. Um, But I have to figure out, okay, what's going on here. And that requires really deep knowledge and deep understanding and, and deep experience with children and how they develop. And you have to have reasonable expectations for what's going on. You have to have a clear model of, of language and literacy and how that all develops. That's really hard to come by. You're not going to come out of college with that. You're going to get a start on that. And then you're going to get more and more and more and more experience. And that model in your head is going to get better and better and better. By the time you retire, you might be pretty good at it. Um, you know, which is one of the tragedies of all this kind of work, whether it's what teachers do or what I do, is you're just getting really good at it about the time you <laughs> run out of gas and you're like, okay, I can't do this anymore. Right. Um, you're making me think about, you're making me think about this. You can totally laugh. And Melissa's going to be like, Lori, I've heard you talk about this person before, but <laughs> there's this, so there's, I follow a, a clinical psychologist on Instagram and her name is Dr. Becky and she's super practical. And that's what I love about her. But one of the things that she always shares is two things are true. And I feel like that's what you're making me think about is that it doesn't have to be one is right. One is wrong. It's that more than one thing can be true at once. And I don't know why that felt so like helpful to me as an adult to hear in my parenting, like, you know, but also just generally I keep that in mind. And that's what I feel like resonates with me right now that what you're saying is, you know, two things are true that the child who can, you know, the teacher heard read fluently, maybe, um, or whatever, however, the, the teacher heard the child read, that's one thing. But then also this other assessment is saying that they're struggling in this other area or, or maybe in a certain area of reading. So two things can be true. I heard that, you know, one doesn't have to be wrong. One doesn't have to hold more weight than the other. It's let's explore and figure out what's going on for this child. Like it doesn't need to be, uh, I I think that's the one thing. Ask yourself the very interesting question. How can both these things be true? How is this possible? And to figure out what you're looking at, um, you know, maybe repeat some assessments or gather some other data, run this by somebody else, you know, figure these things out. How can my kid be doing so well at one thing and so poorly at another? Mm -hmm. How can they be good at this at one time and bad at it at another? And sometimes it's just, that's how things go. You know, if we're doing things at near the limit of our ability, it's more likely that we're going to get that irregular performance. Whereas if we're doing things more in our wheelhouse that we should be solid at, we have a greater expectation um, that, that kids are going to do well, you know, that they should be more consistent. Um, you know, and this goes to the question of reading too, you know, sometimes people who don't like structured literacy and who have a bad reaction to it and who have a visceral reaction to the phrase of the science of reading say, so you don't think kids should read books? No, I absolutely think kids should read books. (laughs) You know, and I think books are wonderful. I think it's great if kids love books and that's great. What I'm saying is, just having a lot of books around and loving books. Well, that's a great thing. That isn't going to do it. That's not right. enough by itself. Right. The question here really is there are certain insights kids need to have things. Kids need to figure out about language and re- reading and writing and how it all works. Some of that is very factual. Some of it is more of an insight, a, a, a sort of a light bulb that goes on in their head. 
that they get from a combination of experience and instruction. The question is, should we leave that up to them to figure out for themselves or should we teach it to them quite explicitly? Now, one point of view on learning said, while it may be more difficult for them to figure it out on on their own, if they learn it on their own, it'll be more deeply understood and be more permanent and they'll have a deeper understanding and they'll be better at it in time. That was at one time that was not an unreasonable theory, but it was never more than a theory. And the most recent data is absolutely 100% clear that teaching things to people explicitly yields better results than waiting for them to discover it on their own. There's a lot about learning that you're going to have to discover on your own. You know what Mark Seidenberg refers to as statistical learning. There's a lot about how language works that you're going to figure out on your own. You know, nobody, so I'm going to say two things and one of them is going to sound right. And one of them is going to sound wrong. And the first one is, could you pass the butter? That doesn't sound right. But if I say, I'd like to introduce you to Muhammad Ali, the heavyweight champion of the world, the pronunciation of these sounds fine. Now there is a rule, there's a definable, there's a, there's an explicit rule for why it sounds right in one and right in the other, wrong in the other. Nobody ever probably ever taught you that rule, but kids seven, eight, nine years old know that rule implicitly. They picked <laughs> it up from language. They understand what the rule is. That their brain recognizes that the butter sounds wrong and the heavyweight champion of the world sounds right. <laughs> so that's just an example. There's lots of opportunities to figure it out on your own. There's, it's not right. like it's not like we're going to explicitly teach you everything about language. We could never do that. We could never do that. Right. But the parts we can explicitly teach you, we should explicitly teach you and not rest on faith that they'll figure it out on their own. Because if they don't figure it out on their own, it's a disaster. I've had the um, title of one of Louisa Motz's articles, reading is rocket science in my head yeah. as you've been talking because it, for both for kids and for right. teachers, I mean, to, I still don't know. I did take letters training and I still don't know all the rules of the English language <laughs> and how to teach students. You know, it's, Do it's you think a lot. You explicitly know the rule for what I just demonstrated with the word the, no, I don't so when, <laughs> I was going to ask what's the but rule, you're right? It sounds, the rule. it sounds so right. The, when we say the butter, the is the carries very little of what we would call morphological weight. It carries almost no meaning, and therefore it is an unstressed syllable, and therefore mm-hmm. E is pronounced as a schwa. That's a perfect rule. The heavyweight champion in the world, the now carries tremendous morphological weight. It's, it's a, a part it's of a, the title. It's, it's a short, it's a short version of the one and only. It's it's telling us the one and only. It's carrying a lot of meaning. Therefore, it's treated as a conventional open syllable, and e, e can now be pronounced in the long form because it carries more weight. And you know it in your head. It sounds one sounds right and one sounds wrong, right. but you don't know the rule. But you do know the rule. You just don't know that you know it. You can't put it into words, but at some very deep level, you understand right. the rule. And but why not teach like teachers those way. rules so they can right. teach students like, those because rules? Because if, if you would ask me, Lori, what do you think the rule is? I'd be like, I don't. It sounds right. Like that is not a rule. <laughs> and I, that's not a rule. That doesn't help me in the future to, to know right. how to pronounce. But there's all kinds of things. And I'm not saying we need to teach that rule to people. I think it would be right. interesting to explore with kids as a little 45 second lesson, particularly more advanced kids. Hey, you read here. It sounds right. And here it sounds wrong. Why is that? Let's think yeah. about that a little bit um, because it becomes very interesting, but 
we don't necessarily have to teach it, but we do need to teach the sound that TH makes. And we do need right. to teach the sounds of the vowels and we do need to teach phonemic awareness. And we, you know, phonemic awareness is one of those things, even as I say, teach phonemic awareness, I'm not convinced we can, what we do is we <laughs> provide opportunities for kids to have the insight of phonemic yes. awareness because ultimately it's an insight, right. you know, your brain, right? Oh, you know, I can tell you all I want that there's three sounds in the word bat and they're the same sounds as in the word tab. They're just in a different order. I can tell you that all I want. That's not phoneme awareness. Phoneme awareness is when your brain goes, oh, I know. Okay, I get it. I get it. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. That's phoneme awareness. I can't teach you phoneme awareness. I can just put you in situations where you're more likely to develop phoneme awareness mm -hmm. and hopefully then to connect that phoneme awareness to phonics and be able to move back and forth between print and speech and sound and graph graphemes and phonemes and move very fluently and very fluidly and gracefully back and forth between those in a very automatic way. Yeah. I'm I don't, taking notes. Lily's <laughs> taking notes. I don't, I don't want to stop us, but I also know we're way over time already, <laughs> That's okay. but this has been a really, really fascinating conversation and I, I can't thank you enough. I know Lori can't either. Um, we do always end our podcasts with uh, asking our, our guests to leave a piece of advice for listeners. So I don't, we, I, we didn't, I don't think we warned you ahead of time, no, um... <laughs> but if you have any advice for teachers or parents who might have students who are struggling with reading or anything else that you can think of or a last story you want to tell, we can, we can switch it so up let me i'm going to tell you a story <laughs> this is for teachers because i think a lot of people who listen to this podcast are teachers and you're yeah. both teachers this is a very important story for me so i worked with a young man he's about 12 years old when i met him um he came to the hospital back when i did inpatient work because he had flown off in a rage at school and beaten a child who was teasing him kid was much bigger but he jumped on him and he beat this kid so bad he broke all the bones in his face and the kid needed reconstructive surgery that's the kind of rage this boy was filled with and i got to know him and spent a lot of time with him and he was never warm and affectionate towards me he was pretty quiet pretty closed down but i thought we he trusted me and we became pretty close and he told me that the one thing he knew he wanted to do with his life uh, was find his parents because he had been separated from his parents and was in the system and didn't know where they were anymore. He really wanted to find his parents someday so he could kill them. That was the one thing he was sure he wanted to do. And I, I won't go into details, but they deserved it. I have no, I have no problem with the fact that he wanted to kill them. If anybody deserved to be killed, they were on that list. But obviously this concerned me that he had this urge and he still had that plan when I stopped seeing him when he left the hospital. And a couple of years later, when he was 14 years old, I was at our detention center and he walked, I was in a room talking to the kid. He walked by the window. He was very easy to recognize. And he walked by the window and I came back the next day to see him and asked him, why are you in detention? And he said to me, Oh, you don't know. I found my parents. And the blood literally drained from my head. I, I started to black out. I started to pass out. Mm. And I, I'm running this, I'm running the news through my head. Two people were killed. You know, did I miss this in the news? Did it just get bundled up with all the other tragedies? 
I sort of gathered myself and I was shaky and I, and I asked him, so tell me what happened. And he was living in a foster home and nobody knew it. He just happened to be living a couple of blocks from his biological parents. Nobody realized they were there and he saw them one day. They didn't see him, but he saw them. And that night he took his, he left the foster home. He took some things, he went and knocked on their door. Nobody knew where he went and they let him in because they didn't know why he was there. And he was there for a while planning what he was going to do. And there came a night where he stood around their bed. They were asleep. He had the biggest, sharpest knife in the kitchen. And he was making, it becomes a kind of long story, how he was deciding who he would stab first and who he would stab second and how he was making that decision. And I, he was telling me that. And I said, so what did you do? He said, well, I went back down to the kitchen. I put the knife away. And I walked to the District 4 police station in Milwaukee on Sp Silver Spring Drive. And I turned myself in. And the reason he was in detention was because he had some minor delinquency charges against him earlier, and he had missed a required court date while he was on the run, which caused him to issue a trivial warrant for his arrest. And that's why he was in detention, because they had to run him through court one time so that before they could let him go back to his foster home. That's the whole reason he was in detention. He hadn't killed anybody. And the blood came back to my head, and I felt lighter than air. And I asked him, I said, why didn't you do it? You know, there's the one thing I remember what you told me was the one thing you were sure you wanted to do with your life. Why didn't you do it? And he held up eight fingers. He rolled both thumbs into the palm of his hands and he held up four fingers on each hand. And he said he knew the exact number. He said, because there are eight people in the world that I would disappoint if I did that. And I didn't want to let them down. And the first one he named was his child psychiatrist, Dennis Kozell who is a friend of mine and a wonderful guy and deserved to be on the list. And the second person he named was me, which surprised the hell out of me because I hadn't seen him in two years. And he was a pretty hard kid. And I tell people when I say this at conferences, you know, you can cheer for me at the end of this or you cannot cheer for me at the end of this, but nobody's ever going to pay me a bigger compliment than I didn't kill some people because of you. And the other six people he named were all teachers. And I suspect that none of them would have expected to be on that list because he was a hard, grizzled, angry, rageful boy. And they would have been surprised that he, that they mattered to him that much. Eight teachers, eight, six teachers, eight people, but six teachers that he could name. He could name them and how he met them and that he believed he mattered to them and he didn't want to let them down. Teachers are saving kids. They don't even know they're saving them. You know, particularly in our cities and in difficult situations, teachers are the lifeline that are keeping kids alive. You're keeping kids alive who you think hate your guts. Yeah. Um, you don't even know it. You don't even know it. And all I'm asking is for people to get better, if we can, to get better at teaching kids to read so that we can do that for even more kids. It's, I'm not saying you're bad people or you don't do good things. You save kids' lives. You save kids' lives. You save the lives of people you've never met. You're saving lives all the day, all the time. I just want to save a few more. That's my message. That's so powerful. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, Literacy Lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday and share more resources in a newsletter on Tuesday. 
sign up for our newsletter at literacypodcast.com. Each week, you'll receive important information, resources, and connected content. We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our Literacy Lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us.